This is exactly right. I think that cancer, once you have it, is something that you live with forever in some form or another. Currently, it's in remission. Um, if I'm lucky, it will be in remission for a long, 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 long time. I don't believe that it's something you survive, like you survive a car accident or you survive an earthquake, right? Like if you survive it, you sur- you made it. You're at the other end. It's over. You've moved on. Like with cancer, it's not, you don't really ever have that luxury. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Lies, Cons, Page Turners, and Single Parenting with Julie Clark. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Flight. It has earned starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and Library Journal, and the New York Times has called it thoroughly absorbing. It's been named an Indie Next Pick, a Library Reads Pick, and a Best Book of 2020 by Amazon Editors and Apple Books. Her debut, The Ones We Choose, was published in 2018 and has been optioned for television by Lionsgate. Her latest thriller, which we are talking about today, The Lies I Tell, was just released. And I'm saving my comments for a few moments on that book. Julie lives in Los Angeles with her two sons and a golden doodle with poor impulse control. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so I had your book and I was going through my regular prep routine. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm just, it's really busy. I'm just going to, I'm just going to have to skim this one um, just to get the gist of it. And I I opened it and I started reading, and that was that was it. Like <laughs> that that was it. I I I changed things in my schedule. I mean, I was I was not only riveted, I was thinking about it all the time when I wasn't reading it to get back to it and thinking about your characters. So I just want to say, and everyone listening. This is no joke. It just grabs you from the beginning. Yay. That's always good to hear. Thank you. Always a balance to talk about the book without giving up too much. So these people, actually, why don't Alina let you set the stage before we take a deeper dive into it. So go for it. So The Lies I Tell is the story of Meg Williams, who's a con artist who travels the country under assumed names creating elaborate backstories to back up whatever lies she's telling. Um, She's sort of refining her craft over the course of a decade so that she can return home to Los Angeles to pull her final con on the man she believes destroyed her childhood, her life, her future. 
Um, but what she doesn't know is that there is a woman in Los Angeles waiting for her to return. An investigative reporter, Kat Roberts, who was collateral damage on a con that Meg pulled a long time ago. And Kat blames Meg for the destruction of her career. And so it's a cat and mouse story where you're not really sure who's the cat and who's the mouse. Kat's plan is to infiltrate Meg's life under an assumed name, create an elaborate backstory to back up her lies, and to bring Meg down and expose her for who she really is. But what Kat doesn't realize is that Meg, Meg's plans are not crystal clear, and it soon becomes unclear who Meg is really, who, who Meg's true target is. And this question of that that unfolds throughout the book this complexity between revenge and justice yes right and 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 it seems at times there's a fine line distinguishing the two yes i mean there's a line in the book that says the only difference between revenge and justice comes down to who is telling the story you know mm-hmm. what side of the story mm-hmm. are you on is it revenge? Then you're the victim. Is it justice? Then you're the perpetrator. So, you know, it just, I I think that the two can be interchangeable. So I'm always so intrigued. And I was, you know, thinking about obviously this, uh, our conversation today, as I was reading and thinking, where do these characters come from? And do they end up taking on a life of their own within you? You know, what's yeah. what's that process of character development? Um, yeah, they start really just with an idea. So I was listening to a podcast about a con artist in Australia, some guy who like cons women out of money and, you know, their families out of money and like can't lose investment opportunities. And I remember thinking like, I think a woman would be better at this. I think that we're less threatening. I think that people tend to believe us in a way about soft soft things, you know, like you can trust me. I'm on your side. I'm your friend. Like people are going to, people take women at face value much more so than men. Um, but women are also vastly underestimated by powerful men in particular. And so that's sort of what Meg, my main character leans into. She sort of takes advantage of the fact that women are perceived as not as competent, not as smart, not as capable as their male counterparts. And she relies on that heavily in order to take advantage of people who she believes deserves it. Um, I think my characters really do come from, they, they do evolve as the story progresses. As they start figuring out what the story is about, then my characters start shifting to serve that purpose. But they start pretty mm-hmm. pretty bare bones and pretty two-dimensional at the very, very beginning of drafting. And it isn't until I figure out sort of what the overall theme of a book is that I then go back and start really shaping my characters to to fit within that mm. story vision. Do they live within you during the process of writing? I mean, do you hear, in a sense, like their voice or their thoughts? Or is there, is there compartmentalization for you? I mean, I that they feel real to me in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, having created them, I know they're not real. I invented them. Um, but they do feel three-dimensional because I do, I do work very, very hard to sort of understand their motivations. So a character like Meg, who's out in the world doing bad things by any measure of, of, you know, of, of a stand, so, you know, society standards, um, 
you, I, I still try to understand what her motivations are. You know, I don't think anybody aside from like a true psychopath um, mm-hmm. believes that they're doing bad things. And if they are doing bad things, they're doing bad things because they either have to, they're forced to, they need to, they don't have any other options. They're very mm-hmm. sorry about it, but they're still going to do it. And, and so trying to approach characters from that angle helps to sort of make them real, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As I, I really was thinking about people's, you know, as a psychologist, I'm always thinking about people's behaviors and motivations and emotions. And in the book, I I was really, there's so much, you know, trauma laden um, in these characters' lives. And I thought of the book um, that Oprah Winfrey um, co-authored with Dr. Bruce Perry not that long ago about trauma and and it's what happened to you. And their whole argument is instead of saying, you know, like, what's wrong with you? The question is what happened to you? And I was thinking about that as I came to really like and root for these characters who in some sense are in opposition in some sense are not and realizing their behaviors, which like you said, for societal norms will be looked down upon and judged come from very legitimate places of experiences that happen to them. Yeah. I mean, that's always the goal, right? Um, mm-hmm. And as a writer, my goal is for you to root for my characters, even when they're doing mm-hmm. the wrong things. And so writing Meg is sort of this morally gray person who is doing things that, you know, you and I would not do. Um but yet we understand why she's doing them and even want her to succeed. Like that's sort of, that's, that's a win for me that, that you were, that you were rooting mm-hmm. for. That's exactly what I was going for. I'm still rooting for them. I know how it ends and I'm still rooting yeah. for them. Well, actually I'm, yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it there. Rooting, rooting for the future. Yes. Um, I was also wondering, I know in your first book, as I read about your first book and how it unfolded and you end up doing a deep dive in DNA and um, genetics, which was not necessarily your intention. And then you became, you know, expert on it by talking to experts and doing your research. I was wondering in this book, again, the psychological sophistication of hearing the care, hearing Meg and Kat's thoughts as they were thinking about doing something, intentionally doing something, misleading, like the psychological sophistication for me was very, um, it was very real. And so I, I was curious as to, does that come naturally for you? Or did you have to do some research into these sorts of personality types? I did some research into con artists and the psychology of con artists. There's a book by mm. Maria Konnikova called The Art of the Con or something like that. Um, of the confidence game. I'm not, I'm blanking on it right now. But, um, so I did read a lot about sort of the psychology behind people who are con artists and most of them are complete sociopaths. I mean, like they just have zero regret and zero, you know, remorse and will Mm -hmm. go right back out and do it again the first chance they get. But what I really wanted to focus on is sort of how they, lure their victims in. I wasn't necessarily going to write a con artist in the true sense of the word as they exist in in the real world. I wanted to write sort of my own 
my own personalized version of a con artist that a reader would root for. And so I couldn't have her be a true sociopath. But um, but but I did take a lot of moves from this book as far as how how con artists lure their victims in, what kinds of people do they target, and how do they manage to convince people to do these absurd things, really, when you think about it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so they target people who are in the midst of major life transitions, you know, uh, major, you know, stress usually. Um, and so Meg definitely targets people who are in, you know, in the middle of a divorce, in the middle of a losing election, um, you know, time people who don't have the energy or bandwidth to really fact check in a way that like you or I might be able to fact check, but also people mm-hmm. who she figures out really what it is they want more than anything else in the world. And then she convinces them that she's the only one who's able to give that to them. And that's really mm-hmm. what con artists do. Mm-hmm. It it made me. I'm a very trusting individual. So as I'm reading the book, you know, you're I'm looking at myself and I'm thinking, am I too trusting? You know, what's the way to approach the world? And um, I still come out. I still came out with, oh no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust people. Yeah. But we just have to know that this. I mean, there's there's big cons. Then there's there's a lot of small C's, a lot of small cons that happen on a daily basis. And then I, we just have to choose what kind of people we're going to be. Yes. I mean, definitely. You know, and it's that trust but verify kind of kind of situation. I mean, I got an email this morning from an unknown person, you know, hi, Angie, I, I'm sorry I haven't responded to the shower, you know, invitation yet, but I'll be there. And I'm like, this is not an email to me. And so, you know my untrusting brain was like, this is a phishing scam. I'm just going to delete it. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to say wrong person or you mistype. Like, I'm just not going to do that because in my mind, that's a person trying to get, trying to mine me for information, you know? Right. 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 We, uh, we're having a, uh, a tree situation, but, uh, at my place and our neighbor's place. And, Last week, someone came by and uh, with a huge crew, you know, it's going through the neighborhood. There's lots of trees and um, fire seasons coming yeah. and, um, you know, hey, like, we'll do all this. And the price was like, we're like, whoa, wow, that's great. And yeah, I'll have it all done by the end of the day. And I need my check, uh, you know, check at the end of the day, got to pay my crew. So we did this. And they did a lot of work and we wrote our checks. He's like, I'll be back in the morning to pick it all up. Yeah, there's huge piles of slash that need to be, um, need to be all uh, chopped up. Um, chipped up and just never not coming back not coming back you know we're texting him i'll be right there i'll be there tomorrow and then my neighbor and i were kicking ourselves like gosh we should have we trusted we should have you know waited like you you finish a job and then we both came out on the same side which is like that's not how we live like we if we say we're gonna do something we're gonna we're gonna start with trust but sometimes Anyways, I'm still texting, so we'll see how the story ends. But it's like, I think we have to choose as people how to be and where to discern. And like you said, if these days with fishing expeditions, that's one level of trust. But face-to-face with someone who shakes your hand and you know, you're know you having a, a, at least a, a little relationship, I don't know. We have to choose to trust or not trust. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. So you, you have been a professional writer for less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that 
that's not a lot of time to have uh, achieved the literary success that you have in in my mind. And so, first of all, amazing. Thank you. Second of all, it didn't just start in 2013. So what's the backstory of you you know, becoming a writer? I mean, it's something that I always wanted to do. Even when I was a kid, um, I remember reading books and thinking like, I want to, I want to do that. I want to write something like that. I think I could do that. Um, and then growing up and going to college, I had my BFA in graphic design of all things. Um, and realizing that isn't really the path for me. And, and then, Oh, but that's in the book. Graphic design is in this latest book, everyone. Okay. There's just a piece. Oh yeah. I I was like, yes. Um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) just a piece, just a piece. Yeah. 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 And so, and so I, you know, I, fiction was always something that I wanted to do. And I took some classes. I worked in fundraising at Berkeley in the athletic department there for like four or five years. And as an employee of the university, like I was able to take, you know, extension classes. I think I took them for free. I don't know if they're still offered for free, but anyway, um, I was, I took some creative writing classes there and it was always in my twenties. I dabbled in it and never really went anywhere. Um, and then, you know, I, got married. I had kids. I got divorced. I was a single mom. I'm a full-time fifth grade teacher. Life kind of gets in the way, you know? And so Mm -hmm. in around 2013, I sat down and really just started thinking about like, well, you know, here I am. I'm what, like 40, 40 something years old, 42, 43. And I just wasn't really sure if teaching was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, you know, until retirement, um, or if there was something else, I know my kids were in preschool and I was having a really hard time paying for it. It was a phenomenal preschool that cost probably like the rent on a small apartment. Um, yeah. Ivy league education pretty much. And so it was every month, it was really, really hard for me to write that check. I was, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel. And I remember thinking like, maybe I'll just write a book, sell a book, and then I'll be able to afford preschool, which is, you know, every author in the audience is laughing right now because that's not how it works. Um, and it's never that fast. And so (laughs) I, you know, I think by the time I sold my first book, um, my, my boys were in, uh, fourth and first grade, something like that. Second grade. Maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I mean, like it just, I had blown past the preschool years and was still working on it. And it just became something that I wanted to, to accomplish, you know, it was something that I worked on mm-hmm. quietly. I didn't, you know, make a big, announcement to anybody in my life. I'm writing a book and I just kind of sat down and tried it and wrote a book and it went nowhere and I couldn't get an agent with it. And so I wrote another book and that's the book that got my agent. And that's the book that became my debut, the ones we choose. And Mm -hmm. things just took Mm -hmm. off from there, you know? Well, and for people to know that because being a single mom and being a teacher, which thank you for adding that. And when I, when I got through your bio and then read more about you and like, Oh my God, one of the most important things you do in the world is not in your, you know, your literary bio that you are a fifth grade teacher, like, like working with these people. Um, so more about that in a moment, you were writing from four to six in the morning and uh, initially, and I told, I related to that. We had at the time of, I was doing my first book writing. We had three young kids 
and um, that was who didn't sleep like your kids. Um, we, you know, we had we did not sleep yeah. for a very long time, and that was the only time that there was quiet before the workday started to do the writing too. So, in some respects, it was the most peaceful time of day and most productive time of day. Once I dragged myself out of bed, really tired. So, like, what was that? What was that process for you? I mean, it's the same. I mean, it's like my alarm goes off at three forty-five. And mm-hmm. I don't want to wake up, but I do because yeah. that's my yeah. job. And, and in, you know, these days, like I get paid to get up at three forty-five and work. So I need to do that. Yeah. You know, it's right. not, right. it's not really optional at this point because there's work to be done. And I only have these two hours or so three hours, maybe in the summer to get it, get it done. So you know, it just becomes something that you do, you know, and I go to mm-hmm. bed very early. I'm usually asleep by nine at the latest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, my boys are older now and much more independent and they don't need me to enforce a bedtime and they don't need me to, you know, cut their fruit for a snack at, you know, 830 or whatever time they want to eat it. Um, mm-hmm. They're pretty, they're pretty self-sufficient. and. Um, so it, it's it's easy for me to live in this way. Mm-hmm. And then there was a period of your life where you were given more time to write in because of a reason that no one wants. Yes. Um, and you are a cancer survivor. I am. In 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had a double mastectomy. I went through chemo and radiation. I took. I was lucky enough to be able to take um, that time off from work, I went on disability. And I remember thinking it was before I had published anything, but I was working on the book that would become my debut. And I remember thinking like, this will be so great. I'll have all this extra time to write. And I didn't really, I didn't really use it. You know, I didn't really, I mean, and granted there were other things going on and, you know, right. But, right. But I did make a point of keeping waking up at 345 every morning. You know, my boys at the time were in fourth and first grade. And what I wanted them to know more than anything was that everything is fine. Nothing has changed. And they knew that as long as Mm. I was still getting up at four in the morning to write, then everything must be okay. Because if things were not okay, then she wouldn't be still still getting up so early. And so that was just really important for me to keep my routine as much as possible for their sake so that they mm-hmm. knew that there wasn't anything to worry about, you know. That is uh that's mindful parenting right there. I mean, there's nothing more important than giving when we can giving our kids a sense of security. And uh most of us will do things that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do for ourselves for our kids, right? That, and I think a lot of that too is, is that the way that you do that isn't just through what you say, because kids understand from a very early age that oftentimes words that come out of adult mouths, especially aren't a hundred percent true or accurate. Um, but, but our actions are what speak louder really than our words. And so if Mm -hmm. we can behave in a way that exemplifies that everything is okay, that things are not going to change, that everything is the same, then even if they don't necessarily understand it, you know, 
consciously, subconsciously, mm-hmm. their radars are put at ease, right? They're noticing things, mm-hmm. they're noticing behaviors that will put them at ease. Mm-hmm. And did you find, how did they come through your cancer as a result of all this? Um, fairly unscathed is mm-hmm. my impression now many, many years later. Um, they don't really remember much about it. I mean, I think they remember mm-hmm. the hair, the headscarves and the hats, um, but they don't really remember mm-hmm. anything else about it. I mean, my younger was only in first grade and he really doesn't remember much about it. My older son was in fourth and he remembers being worried, but not really scared, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, knock on wood, like everything, you know, is is continues to be good. So, you know, it's really yeah. something, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've put it in the rear view mirror. I don't really subscribe to the term survivor. Um, mm. I think that cancer, once you have it is something that you live with forever, um, mm-hmm. in some form or another. Currently it's in remission. Um, if I'm lucky, it will be in remission for a long, 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 long time. Um, mm-hmm. but I do, I don't believe that it's something you survive, like you survive a car accident or you survive an earthquake, right? right? Like if you survive it, right. you sur- you made it, you're at the other end, right. it's over, you've moved on. Like with cancer, it's not, you don't really ever have that luxury. What would you call it? What, what, is there, is there a, uh, an alternative term that we can start using? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely sure there is a word for it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? But I always, I'm always very reluctant to use the word survivor. It feels very, very, um, like tempting fate kind of. That's fair. And I do, uh, I definitely resonate with, uh, you know, if you survive a car accident, the assumption is that was a single, yes, a single incident that you made it through and hopefully will never happen again. And this is a different ballgame. So fifth grade teacher, author, touring to promote your books. <laughs> yes. And 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 single parent. Yes. So again, I have my own experience of doing different versions of this mm-hmm. with a partner. Yeah. And I know how exhausting and stretching you know, I mean, there's all the good stuff too, but just talking about the, the, the tough stuff, how do you, how do you do it? I have a tremendous support system. My parents live in town and my boys are super close with them. Um, Mm -hmm. and so anytime, anytime I need coverage or whatever, they are happy to step in and the boys are happy to be with them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it really is a team effort. It's true. It's so it's um it's okay. So in terms of terms, single parent, and I know you've written about the idea of the choice of single parenthood and how that's not always represented. So tell us tell us about how you how you think about single parenthood and how you would like it to be understood mm. by everyone. Um first of all, I don't see it as a disability in the way that a lot of our society views it as like poor you or those poor kids. Um, I can say that being a single parent is hard, but 
it's not any harder than, in fact, it's much, much easier, I think, than being married to a person who makes you miserable or a person who makes your home unhappy um, or, or a marriage that makes a home unhappy. I think that is incredibly damaging for children. You know, I'm no expert. Mm -hmm. I'm not a psychologist, but I am an expert in children in that I work with them and have worked with them for 25 years. So I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that I have and their families that I have firsthand experience of over a prolonged period of time. Um, and I will say that my, that, that my students who struggle the most emotionally, behaviorally, cognitively, academically, socially are the kids who are in homes where parents are in high conflict. Um, mm -hmm, my, yep. my students who are in single parent homes, um, are not, they don't struggle in that same way. They struggle with things. I mean, you know, sometimes it's challenging mm -hmm. for kids to go back and forth between two houses and all of those things are a challenge, but those are logistics that families can figure out and work through. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I do feel very strongly that, that it does not give kids a disadvantage in the way that sometimes our culture sort of yeah. you know, yeah. draws upon. I, I just don't, I just don't find that to be true. It's certainly not true for my kids. And it's certainly not true for the majority of kids from single parent households who pass through my classroom. Those kids are well adjusted. Mm -hmm. They, you know, the mm -hmm. parents are involved. Even if, even if one of them is not involved, even if there's only one right. hands-on parent, um, they're happy kids. They're well adjusted. They've got, you know, so, so I just, don't, yeah. I don't buy into yeah. that myth at all. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with that from my professional experience as well. Um, you know, these days families, there's yes. multiple different looking families, different formations, um, ideas. However, before, um, there was such, um, so many f options for different types of families for decades ago, the research has been super clear and consistent, which is, whether your kids, whether kids come from divorce or uh, non-divorce, it's the quality. It's the conflict. It's the quality of the the parental relationship, together or apart, right. that actually is the biggest indicator of child adjustment. To right. your point, um, and you know we have this. 50% uh, divorce rate, which has hovered there for a long time, gone up even a bit uh, since COVID for a lot of reasons people understand. And still, so we have this, God, why is there so much divorce on the one hand? And how do we prevent it? And on the other hand is, how do we create healthy kids? Which those those conversations don't line up as nicely as people used to or want to think. No, I mean, I don't even think they really overlap because I think that you can, mm -mm. You, you you know, whether, whether a marriage is healthy or not, or whether the, it ends in divorce or it doesn't, um, you, you know, I think I agree with you. I think it's the conflict and it's how, it's how the two adults interact with each other. I'm fortunate, you know, my boy's dad and I get along great, you know, we just mm -hmm. did not do well being married. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, but even on the, you know, even, even in the times when I just didn't even want to be in the same room with him and he didn't want to be in the same room with me, um, we faked it in front of our boys. I mean, they just never really, they just never really, mm -hmm. you know, once, once we had decided to separate, um, you know, and, and, and 
we separated when my youngest was an infant. I mean, so he has no mm. recollection of it. And in fact, I think when he mm -hmm. was like seven or eight, he was horrified to learn that we had actually been married. I mean, he was just appalled by the oh. idea. Like, how is that? He couldn't even fathom possible? that idea. You know, yeah. my older yeah. does remember it. And he remembers a lot of conflict. He remembers a lot of yelling. Mm. He remembers a lot of anger. And, you know, for a long time when he was in preschool, he had a lot of anxiety about, about, you know, everybody getting along and, you know, it, it took him a long time to grow out of that. It took him a long time to mm -hmm. sort of move beyond that. But, you know, I think both of my kids very much understand why we are not married, would not want us to be married. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, that's, I think healthier for them that we're not. And I think they recognize that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people dealing with this, a lot of people listening who are perhaps contemplating um, separation or in a separation or going through a divorce. What, what are your, your, your greatest you know, pieces of wisdom from your experience of like, what, what would you suggest they lead with when going through a difficult process for themselves and trying to guide their kids through it? Um, first of all, get therapy, get yourself into some individual therapy, because I think that, you know, as much, however many good friends you have to lean on, um, there's no, there's no better friend to lean on through a tough time than somebody you pay to be your friend, because hmm. you don't, you know, you need your friends to be your friends and you need your therapist to be your therapist. So if it's possible, if you can afford it, unfortunately in our country, that's not always feasible. Mm -hmm. Get yourself mm -hmm. some therapy. Um, I would say, you know, the idea of divorcing, especially when you have kids. And for me, I had very young kids, um, you know, three and nine months old. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that you need to have a support system. You need to have something in place to help out with childcare, whether it's friends or family. Um, I think that's important as well because you can't do it by yourself. You know, you just, there's just, mm -hmm. it's just not possible with appointments and, you know, tasks that you have to do and the unraveling of a marriage can feel overwhelming. And I would say mm -hmm. that, you know, don't get overwhelmed by all of the things that need to be done, but just look at what's the next thing that needs to be done mm. and just focus mm -hmm. on that. That's wisdom right there. Right. Try to stay as much in the present yeah. and, the, and the one thing at it, like eat that elephant one bite at a time. Right. It's right. It's a lot. Yeah. 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 Now having teenagers, <laughs> um, I'm wondering about that experience there. Um, Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg has been on the show a few times and he has a new book um, that's coming out called um, Congrats, You're Having a Teen. And one of the main points of it is uh, he's a myth buster about, you know, a lot of the the literature and the, the terminology, it's like surviving, it's back to surviving, surviving your child's teenage years and like people brace for the storm, the inevitable storm. What's your experience been like with your boys? I'm afraid to say because I don't want to jinx it, but um, my boys are both, I mean, I have an almost 17 year old and a 13 year old. Um, and they're delightful. They're funny. They're wry. They're sarcastic. They're smart. They're thoughtful. They're informed. They like to talk about current events. Um, 
You know, one of them loves to talk about his feelings. The other one is a little more reluctant, but will do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for me, you know, and I think that this is also just a byproduct of it being the three of us for so many years. Like we're, we're very, very close and we've been through a lot and we talk Mm -hmm. all the time about stuff. Um, we just, um, you know, I think, I think that I always try whenever my kids tell me something that I find shocking or upsetting or Mm -hmm. overwhelming or, you know, like they tell me these things and in my head, I'm thinking, what? No. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is to kind of just take a breath and ask Mm -hmm. as many questions as I can. What do you think about Mm -hmm. that? How did that make you feel? Well, what what do you think you could have done differently? Or what do you think you might do next? Or, you, you know, just to kind of like diffuse like talk yes. less, listen more kind of thing. Yes. And the yeah. goal is to keep them talking to me as much as possible. And so far it seems to be working, but you know, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know, but, but overreacting or reacting in any way is a guaranteed way to, um, to have shut it down. Say, oh, I yeah. can't talk to you yeah. anymore, you know, and that's totally. the last thing that I want. Um, you know, uh-huh. but it's the same thing when they were little, when they were in elementary school and preschool, you know, um, I never, I never punished my kids for, you know, making bad choices or breaking the rules or anything. It was never about consequences because as a teacher, the one thing that bugs me more than anything else are the kids who are sneaky, the ones who know mm-hmm. the rules, understand the rules, and are going to wait until you turn your back so they can break the rule. And those mm-hmm. are kids without exception who are punished, given consequences, grounded, your devices are taken away, you're no longer allowed to go to this event or whatever, for essentially being kids, right? And so mm-hmm. my whole goal, my whole philosophy as a teacher is never, never about consequences. It's always about rewriting the decision, you know, going back. All right, mm-hmm. let's, let's try that again. Let's go back yeah. and talk about where things went wrong. What could you do different next time? Like every mistake that a kid makes is a teaching moment. And as a parent, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, I want my kids to trust me and they're not going to trust me if they're afraid of me, if they're afraid that you know, something that they've done, um, impulsively because kids are impulsive, um, right. Is, is going to make them lose something that they value, whatever that is. Right. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. they're, then they're just going to start, they, they get masterful at covering up and lying. And that's just the right. last, last right. thing you want. So, I mean, as a teacher and a parent, yeah. that was always my goal. And I think as with teenagers, it's even more important, you know, it's just, it just shifts a little bit so that it's less about, you know, consequences and, you know, more about, more about helping them talk through, figure out, think through some of the really challenging social right. things that they're encountering among their friends, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. To- I totally agree. Um, I think of a few things. I think of a parent talk I went to years ago about adolescence and it was the therapist was saying, okay, so when you're a teenager, you know, you're driving your teenager and they're in the back seat, and they say, oh, at the party, um, there were all these people using drugs and doing this and that. And all these thoughts go in your mind. And 
she asked the audience, so, so what should you say? And people said all these different things. And she says, I'm going to make a different suggestion. The suggestion is for you to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> just keep them keep them talking keep them like talking. you're saying exactly keep them talking um and then i also think of you were making me think of kelly corgan's uh book tell me more yes. which this right just that's what that's what you're doing like okay tell like tell me more and how important that is because the moment and i've you know emulate to be a certain way and then you know i'm still a real person and parent best intentions, you ask that wrong question or you react in a little way, this wonderful waterfall just turns off and the conversation is over yeah. just by one little misfire. Yeah, yeah. no, it really yeah. is true. And, you know, they're, it's almost like their radars are tuned up to level 10 too. And so mm-hmm. any any slight change in your breathing and they hear it, they, they notice it yeah. and they back yeah. up a little bit. So you know, no pressure, parents, at all. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> none. Just don't say the wrong thing. Right. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Right, yeah. right. Always do the right, right. thing. But you know, and and the other thing I would say too, though, with teens especially, is owning your mistakes. And you know, when you do, mm-hmm. because you're going to overreact about something, is to go back and say, you know what. I really overreacted and I am really sorry that I did that, that I didn't mean to, my feelings took over. You know what that's like when your feelings take over and you're Mm -hmm. not thinking rationally, but like, can we, can, you know, after years of me giving them do overs for impulsive, irrational behavior choices that Mm -hmm. they've made, like they do offer me the grace of, Mm. of getting my own do over. Can we, can, can I, can I get a second chance? to hear mm-hmm. what you said and and make a different choice in how I react because I really, really want to. That's so important. And it's it's wonderful modeling. Um, I think a lot of times parents, we feel that we're supposed to you know, never do anything wrong, have all the answers, be able to act in the moment, precisely say the right and do the thing. <laughs> the right time and it's just it's so not like that it's and what impossible. that does is it, it, it's, it's impossible. impossible no it creates tension it creates this weird like our parents our well, kids you know start to think yeah. lie and then they realize mm-hmm. later like oh my god they've been lying to me all this time that's yeah. they're the expert i mean i think at some point in the pandemic it was early in the pandemic before anybody had been vaccinated and you know my older son wanted to meet a friend outside and i you know i was like yes no. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. You can go. No, 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 you can't go. And he's looking at me like, are you crazy woman? And I just yeah. looked at him and I said, this is really hard. I don't know what mm-hmm. to tell you. I don't know. Like I'm right. very torn. I want you to be able to socialize and see your friends, but I yeah. have this very real concern about exposing right. you, me, your brother, grandma and grandpa to something that could potentially be dangerous. Right. And like, I have to weigh both of those things and I'm the only grown up in the house. I have no help, you know? Totally. And he totally. just kind of was like, just let me know when you figure it out, you know? Yeah. But I think yeah. showing them sometimes that it's hard and that you don't always yeah. know what the answer is and that sometimes you're wrong or you change yeah. your mind, like that doesn't diminish your authority. I think people are terrified mm-hmm. of, of losing their authority. But what I think loses your authority more than anything is, is the insistence that you have it in the first place. I think you totally you right through that. Totally control. Um, in the road, less traveled Scott Peck, mm-hmm. um, an amazing book. 
he, in the parenting piece, he talks about, it's always stuck with me. I read this long before I had kids. And he said something like, it's not whether you say yes or no about what your child is requesting. It's that they know that you took the time to consider it. Yeah. And that has always stuck with me. And in my hardest conversations or hardest situations with our um, young adults of teenagers to emerging adults, having the conversation that says, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. This is like what you're saying is I'm really struggling with this. I understand where you're coming from. Here's where we're coming from. And I just need more time. Yeah. Want you to be able to have these opportunities at the same time. Here's our parenting concern. And that, that, I think kids can hear things they don't want to hear more when you're coming at them in a transparent and genuine way and they see the humanity as opposed to like you're talking about like control yes. and power. Yeah, and compliance, yeah. which I don't and compliance, ever, right. ever require right. from my students right. or my own children. Is the, yeah. the idea of compliance is terrifying to me. So what, what this, this, the last question before the parent footprint moment question. Yeah. How has your parenting influenced your teaching and your teaching influenced your parenting? Because I imagine this bridge. Yes, definitely. Um, I think, you know, really and truly, I learned how to be a better parent and a better teacher from uh, our one of my son's preschool teachers, um, Amy Dickens, who teaches at a school here in Los Angeles, who is maybe the best educator I have ever seen. And I've seen a lot of really gifted educators. I was a teacher coach for a long time and went into artful classrooms all over Southern California. Um, and she is hands down the best educator I've ever seen. I learned more about parenting and teaching from her than probably anybody else. And really it's that idea of giving kids space to be who they are um, and giving them space for their feelings and understanding that sometimes other people's feelings make us uncomfortable. And guess what? That's my problem, not your problem. You, the one having all the big feelings, you know, and just valuing them, listening to them, honoring their experience, asking questions. Um, I'd say, I'd say that I am the parent and the teacher I am because of her more than, more than anybody else. Mm. Um, mm. You know, so I'm I'm very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Questions, space, um, allowing for mistakes. I, I'm also hearing, without you saying it, um, avoiding shame, avoiding oh, yes. guilt. Oh, right. Oh my All gosh, of these. Yes. yes. Yeah. The worst thing you can yeah. do is shame a child. I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. trying to remember that these are these are human beings with feelings, emotions, wants, and needs, um, yeah. and to not shame them for any of that. You know, for, right. for things that most of them are out of their control. You know, you can be disappointed mm -hmm. in a decision that a kid makes. You can talk about, you know, how frustrated you are that after asking them twenty times not to do something, they did it twenty-one times. You know, right. um, you can talk about all of those things, but still honor them as an individual, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Julie, it's time for the parent footprint moment right. question. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, 
or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. That's a really hard question. Um, You know, I think for me, like when I read that question and I was thinking about it a little bit, I think what really strikes me, because I work and parent so closely with my own parents, those lines often get a little blurry. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I often do not feel like a parent because my parents are so involved in my life. I still have parents who Mm -hmm. are there to ask advice and, you know, what do you think about getting this car? Or I think I need to do, you know, X with the house, um, to have, to have their advice, their guiding hands still, Sometimes, I mean, I I am a parent and I feel like a parent a lot of times, especially, you know, in the middle of the night when someone's throwing up and I'm the only one here to clean it up. I mean, I definitely feel like a parent in in those moments, but I don't know that I will ever really truly feel like the buck stops here until hopefully far into the future when I no longer have parents. I think that when Mm -hmm. you are still being parented, yourself, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to fully a hundred percent feel like a parent yourself, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that would be different if I had a husband or a partner. Um, right. Right. I, I wonder, I don't know. I've not really had that lived experience as a parent of having a partner. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't know if that would be different. So to say the moment when I felt like a parent, like, I think it's ongoing. I think there are times Mm -hmm. like when my son is asking me, can I go meet my friend in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, I definitely felt like a parent then of like, yes, no, yes, no. Like I have, I'm the one he's looking to, to make a decision. I don't know what that decision is. Maybe yeah. I should call my mom and ask her, right? Like that's, right. that's right. Right. You know? Yeah. So or it I, speaks to the fluidity of our roles. I'm like, we're always growing is. and becoming. It yeah. is. We're, we're leaving and becoming all the time, you know, and roles mm-hmm. are shifting, at, you know, constantly. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I think, I think that I have, I have moments where I don't quite believe that I am a parent. You know, sometimes I feel like the very responsible babysitter who's had like a really, really long job, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, but Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Well, thank you for that perspective again, because I think a lot of times we tend to want to compartmentalize and we've, we were this and now we're this and it's gray. Everything's, everything's gray. And, um, I know that's a that's I, I really appreciate that perspective and for us all to hear that just keep becoming everyone just keep becoming you like there's no there there we always want to get there and there, there's really no there there because then there's another there yeah so yeah. yeah and then you've just kind of wasted all the time that you could have been enjoying whatever it was you were right. doing thinking about what's the next yeah. thing exactly well, thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you. Um, you bring a you bring so much to the table. You're very um, mo- you're very 
modest and humble. Again, this whole part of your world of influencing minds, you know, you have this whole other world outside of your professional, very successful writing world. And um, I just have great respect for um, you for you and what you're doing. I love it. I mean, you know, it's not something that I would give up very easily, you know, to, Mm -hmm. you know, there's something very, very soothing to be Mm -hmm. in a classroom of 30 young minds. And, and it doesn't, I know (laughs) people are like, soothing is not the word, but, um, it really is true. You know, they, they have the ability to help you forget whatever problems you are personally struggling with outside of the classroom. Um, Mm -hmm. and you become immersed, you know, you become immersed Mm -hmm. and it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to do. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell everyone where they can follow your your touring. Um, your book is everywhere. Everyone, the lies I tell, I promise you, I promise you, you will love it. Thank you. Um, tell everyone wh- wh- where to go, where to find you. Probably the best place to find me is on Instagram. It's really much where I spend most of my book time. Um, and it's Julie Clark author on Instagram. Um, I'm at Julie Clark books on Facebook and J Clark Ab on Twitter, but Instagram is really probably the place where you'll see most of my content and it's all, it's mostly hundred percent writing related. It's not, I don't do a ton of school stuff there. So yes. Keeping your lives separate, but together yep, at the same exactly. time. Exactly. All right, everyone, that concludes our show for today. So much wisdom and experience packed in this one. Thank you for listening. Please share this with everyone you think will benefit. We love you bringing in new community members to our already amazing community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They make a difference. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.